Hey guys, Bill here. We're going to have Lindsey Jones from The Athletic talking about the difficult start to the NFL preseason period and who might benefit from a shortened or modified regular season in a minute. But first, wanted to mention Heavy Metals Inside the Corolli Gymnastics Empire is a groundbreaking seven-part podcast series that takes listeners on a deep dive into the lives and influence of Bella and Marta Corolli, the most successful and controversial coaches in USA Gymnastics history. Subscribe now to the 30 for 30 feed, listen to that podcast, and subscribe to the Bill Barnwell Show on Apple Podcasts. The whole season is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there is no competition and right now get five dollars off any eight corner pizza with code eight save that's the number eight s-a-v-e go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a jets pizza location near you again try jet signature eight corner pizza and get five dollars off with code eight save that's number eight s-a-v-e jets pizza better because it has to be now on with the show and on with Lindsay. all right as promised Joining me on the show, friend of the show, frequent contributor to the show, it's the Athletics' Lindsay Jones. Lindsay, how are you? I'm good, Bill. How are you doing? I'm great. I am great. You are back from vacation. I am. I didn't go on vacation. I went on a staycation for like a day. So we are both refreshed and ready to get out of the off season and talk about this upcoming NFL season, which might actually happen. I, the NFL seems to believe. That, well, they, they actually seem to believe that nothing was wrong and that everything was fine and everything was going to go off without a hitch. And over the last week or two, things have obviously come up as concerns for the NFL, which they did not seem to believe were an issue until they were raised by the players. So, Lindsay, you've been covering this for The Athletic. Let's just get the sort of broader big picture. Uh, where are the NFL and the NFLPA at right now in terms of their negotiations for the upcoming training camp slash preseason window, everything between now and the start of the NFL season. So right now, and we are recording this on, you know, around lunchtime on Thursday, um, you know, I guess five days away from the veteran reporting day and both sides, they're close. And, you know, I think you've, you've heard reports and you hear from people, especially kind of on the league side that like, Oh, we're 99% done. Well, the things that are still outstanding are pretty significant. And while like if you went through a checklist and there, you know, there were 10 things that had to get done and nine of them are done, you know, the, the, that the last remaining things are pretty important. It's things like the economics of how they're going to figure out how to absorb three, you know, potentially $3 billion of losses is is it going to affect generally the 2020 and the 2021 cap? Um, are they going to agree on a way to spread this out over multiple years and take, you know, absorb the hit, kind of spread it out, you know, maybe, maybe leverage uh, future years of the cap, knowing that or with the expectation that the cap is going to rise once the new media deals are signed, you know, so economics money is a huge, huge issue. And, you know, you look at baseball, I mean, it was the money that held up. The baseball, you know, Major League Baseball returning to play. It wasn't all of the testing protocols. Um, and then the other, you know, this, the, the still the big kind of on-field stuff that has to be figured out is the, the structure of training camp in the preseason. And they're going back and forth. The, the players 
you know, player leadership within the NFLPA, they are really trying to hold firm on this um, extended acclimation period, the, the 21 day for uh, 21 days of strength and conditioning followed by a 10 days of kind of um, like a 10 day ramp up where it's, you know, helmets and shells only, no pads, and then two weeks, 14 days of padded practice before the start of the season. They're still haggling over what exactly that structure is going to look like. And here we are, you know, Thursday afternoon, and that still hasn't been decided. Coaches still don't know exactly what to expect and what their practices are going to look like. They don't know how soon they're going to get their players on the field. Um, so these are pretty significant issues. You know, I think yes. it, you know, it is important to note that they have gotten a lot of stuff done and they're kind of, they're continually negotiating. Um, but the, the things that are out there are not insignificant. So let's talk about the practices. Let's start there because obviously this has been an issue that the players uh, during these CBA negotiations have hit pretty hard over the past two negotiation windows. I know we have Dominique Foxworth uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago. He was someone who was negotiating the CBA in 2011. And that was one of the biggest things that he was pushing for was let's reduce the number of practices in training camp in preseason, the, the padded practices. Let's get our players healthier heading into the season. Um, not anything that you really see when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the fan side of things unless you're going to training camp, but uh, something that has been reduced dramatically over the past uh, 10 years or so. So, Lindsay, in terms of the drop-off we're going to see here, uh, with, with this practice window heading into this sort of unique season, do you think there is a concern on the ownership side that the players are going to insist that this be sort of the plan going forward? Well, that's interesting. I mean, it, it would have to be collectively bargained. Right. I mean, they did they did work through, you know, a, a long-term 10-year CBA where practice structure and the preseason was included in that and mm -hmm. a reduction of the pre, of preseason games will be part of, you know, future seasons once the 17th, once the 17th game starts, likely in 2021 or in 2022. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there probably is some some concern about that. You know, I think that we have questions about that all over. Um, not even just within football, but how how things have changed because of the pandemic. How how quickly will they go back to normal, and what things? will actually go all the way back to normal. I mean, I think there's a lot of us in our, you know, in our own jobs and workplaces and, you know, working remotely. Well, we always work remotely. And there's so many things about the NFL that I think are going to change forever because of this pandemic and the way that their business is run. You know, I think the, the football guys within the league, you know, coaches especially, they're going to fight for every bit of practice time that they can get. I mean, I think a lot of the pushback and if it's come from them, but they're the people who have the least voice and the least say in this mm -hmm. stuff right now, you know, player, it's players that are negotiating on one side and then it's, you know, the owners and the business side, <laughs> you know, business guys are negotiating on the other side. And, you know, the coaches just kind of want football. They want things done the way it's always been done. They want the most time with their guys that they can. You know, I think they've been very unhappy with the changes that have gone on in the last two CBAs and the reduction mm -hmm. of practice time. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know how much like officially, you know, if they, the, the league will want to get back to a normal or normal ish training camp structure next year with preseason games that they can make money off of and the, the joint practices and all of that stuff. So I don't expect it would change a ton, mm -hmm. but you know, I don't think the preseason will ever look in the future like it had, you know, 2019 and earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the preseason obviously 
um, what was a sticking point in these most recent negotiations uh, between the NFL and the NFLPA in, in the recent weeks um, heading into the CBA. Of course, the NFL wanted some preseason. The NFLPA's stance seemed to be pretty much consistently, no, we're not doing a preseason. We're not going to risk getting sick for, uh, you know, fake football. And I, you know, I, I have to wonder. I mean, we're seeing teams now, um, you know, obviously the the way the NFL has made money on preseason in the past has been negotiating it as part of season ticket packages. And now, of course, season ticket holders are having their their deals deferred a year. There may not, there's, uh, you know, the preseason obviously is going to be, um, you know, basically non-existent. Do you think that's going to change, even if it's not in the CBA, do you think it's going to change the way that teams prepare for the season? Just in terms of like, well, being an example, like, like we've seen NFL teams, I think Sean McVay is maybe the most notable proponent, hold out players pretty much entirely throughout the preseason. Uh, we, we, we've seen, you know, uh, Rob Gronkowski. We've seen players who have injury history sit out the entire preseason. Um, do you think that because we're not going to see a preseason this year, we're not going to see players play until week one of the regular season, do you think we are going to see more teams and more players, even if it's not in the CBA, sort of see, hey, these players can survive over the course of a full season without a preseason and hold out those guys in the preseason in the future as a result? Yeah, I mean, I think there might be part of that. I think the part, the, the one thing that we're not talking nearly enough about when we when we talk about the preseason, the lack of preseason games, is that this year there will also not be any of those joint practices. Yeah. And over the past couple of years, the, I mean, the proliferation of those joint practices and those kind of like scrimmage scrimmaging against other teams. I mean, that has just taken off across the league. I mean, nearly every team now is going through at least one of those joint practice sessions, if not two of them, that includes traveling to other teams, having, you know, three or four practices and coaches and players will tell you that those joint practices are far more valuable to the evaluation process, to the preseason, the training camp process, than the actual preseason games are because of the amount of reps that you could get. And, you know, Sean McVay last year with the Rams, you know, he was very clear that it was so much more valuable for him and for Jared Goff and company to get live work against the Chargers defense for an entire practice. Just the number of reps, you know, that, that the first team offense would get significantly more than what they would get in a, you know, week one or week two preseason game where they might play one or two series. So I think the, the really important thing or the, the difference this year is that it's not just the preseason games that are gone away. It's It's any of that time to really have any sort of like live scrimmage action against other players. And then the one other thing that's going to be really, really interesting, um, and I am very curious how all of this is going to go, is because there aren't teams aren't going to be seeing each other in person in these joint practices, and there's not going to be any games, and there's going to be really, really limited media availability covering because there, these practices aren't open. There's going to be a pool, a pool videographer who kind of shares amongst the local video. Mm-hmm. Teams are not going to know that much about what's going on with other teams. And, you know, as they're going to be like spy stuff going on, how are pro scouts going to be doing their jobs to try to figure out which guys are going to be getting cut from other teams and evaluating kind of your guys versus guys around the league, because that's a huge part of what goes on in the preseason is figuring out, okay, if we're going to cut, you know, these five guys, are there, are there guys that are going to be getting cut from, you know, the good teams from the chiefs and the Ravens Mm -hmm. that would make our roster that are better than our 51st through 53rd guys on the roster. There's just, so many things left to consider about just how different this entire preseason and um, this preseason and training camp process is going to be. 
So you're saying we should monitor drone purchases in the Foxborough, Massachusetts area. I mean, that wouldn't be a terrible, that wouldn't be a terrible thought. Um, and yeah, like uh, air, airspace regulations. I mean, I live in Denver and the Broncos training facility is very close to the private airport where all mm -hmm. of the, um, the, like the private jets and stuff fly into. And so there's always a lot of air traffic above the facility and i mean i don't know how many times we've made the jokes about like oh there's there's the uh the the raiders helicopter up there or like oh bill belichick like sent a sent a private plane over because yeah i mean it's teams are going to have to be really creative and i mean i i'm very curious if they're going to be using beat writers and agent sources and just trying to figure out you know what depth charts look like and what games look like i mean it's going to be really 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 interesting the most secretive um, preseason training camp that we've ever seen in the NFL. Yeah, it's almost going back in time, you know, like that information wasn't really available 20, 30 years ago. Uh, yeah, we're not going to have like live tweets from practice of like depth, you know, depth chart movement and, you know, this guy just changed position and, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly the specifics of this like NFL network and ESPN will be allowed to do their kind of training camp tour where they broadcast live from mm -hmm. within a from within a, you know, and kind of as practice is going on, like they have in previous years, my guess is that it will be severely and severely decreased if, mm -hmm. if they have that sort of access at all. I mean, I know reporters from the national networks will be allowed to watch practice, but it's not going to be kind of the free for all open training camp where like, you know, your timeline, if you follow a lot of NFL reporters is just nothing but play by play tweets <laughs> for the first two or three weeks of August. That it's, that's just not going to be the same situation this year because the rules are going to be different and the number of people that are going to be allowed in and actually able to watch practice is going to be so significantly reduced. Mm -hmm. Now, how, how do you think we're going to get to how this impacts teams, you know, in the bigger picture a little later on in a minute or so, but in, in terms of how this is going to impact rosters, I mean, you mentioned that there's going to be very limited training camp, very limited schedule practices, very limited, um, just very limited information on new players entering the league. So, Lindsay, how do you think that's going to impact, really not the top of rosters, because I think, you know, Tom Brady is going to make the bucks. Like, that, we don't really care about that. That's going to happen one way or another. But how is this going to impact, you think, the bottom of NFL roster, especially those last five or six spots on each team? Yeah, I mean, teams are just going to have a lot less information to work off of. So, you know, they're going, I, you know, I think it's really going to benefit draft picks, you know, even if that's guys who are fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round draft picks compared to undrafted rookies. I mean, they're all coming in, the rookies especially, will all be arriving, you know, some of them are already there and going through their, uh, their COVID testing already. Some teams, they won't be showing up and starting their testing until early next week. But, you know, none of them have practiced yet. And there, there isn't, it's going to be a lot harder for these guys who were undrafted undrafted signees or very late round draft picks to beat out other guys on the team that it, you know if there's a guy who was let's say you you know you were a special teams kind of like a like a core special teams player mm -hmm. you know the f number four or five linebacker the 52nd or 53rd guy on a roster last year you might be feeling a little bit better right now because in, in most years, there'd be some rookie, some, you know, sixth or seventh round draft pick or who might be coming in there and ready to take your job and maybe a better player than you, but you're going to have that benefit of, 
having been in the system for a year, know how to know how practices run. You're going to potentially be in better shape because you, you know, had a little bit of money in the off season and could, you know, have your own home gym or whatever. You know, so it might it might benefit those guys a little bit. Um, the one other thing that is not yet finalized that the league and the players association are working through that could really really impact these young players is the size of training camp rosters. If the roster size goes down to 80, that's 10 guys fewer per team. I mean, that's 320 guys around the league who won't even be on a roster in the training in training camp and won't even have a chance to make the team. And you know, that's something that's going to greatly impact. You know, the bubble guys, the, the undrafted players, the, you know, the, the guys who were on practice squads last year that were hoping to fight their way onto a 53-man roster this year. And, um, you know, and I understand from a league perspective why they'd like to go down to 80 and why it makes sense to go down to 80. They're having a hard enough time trying to config, reconfigure locker rooms and figure out how to keep guys socially distanced throughout their buildings. And if, you know, a lot of times you need those bloated rosters because, you have so many practices, you have so many preseason games, mm-hmm. you, know, you have to have enough bodies to get through that fourth preseason game. They're not going to need that right now. You know, they're going to really want to focus the limited practice time they have on the, you know, the 40 guys that are going to be playing consistently, like you're too deep, you know, across your offense and defense. And, you know, it's just, it's tough for those guys. And I, and I do feel for those guys, but I also do understand where, um, you know, where the league is coming from, uh, you know, on this and wanting to just streamline the process as much as they can. Mm-hmm. What about testing? Obviously, there were some disagreements, it's fair to say, about testing. Where does the testing situation stand for NFL players? Yeah, so where they are right now, um, and this is something that actually has been agreed to and signed off on, is that the, there will be daily testing through the first two weeks of training camp. It's a little bit staggered where you know players will be tested on the first day you know maybe you've already seen the helicopter footage or drone footage of tom brady arriving to the facility in tampa bay to get his his first test but you know they they kind of go in there's a designating testing site whether it could be a trailer in the parking lot or a or a kind of an isolated room within the facility they go in they get their first test they and then they leave they go back home for two days um and then they come back on day four and get tested again. And if they have had two negative tests, then they will be allowed to then come into the building and start their strength and conditioning workouts and meetings with coaches in person, those sorts of things. Um, and then at that point, starting on after that day four, they'll be tested every day for two weeks. And the timeline is going to look a little bit different for every team. So it's not like we can say, okay, on you know August 5th, then we'll have, you know, daily testing across the league or daily testing will be complete. It's going to be, it's all a little bit staggered, but it'll be two weeks for each club of daily testing. And if league-wide, the positive test rate falls below 5% after those two weeks, they will move testing to every other day. Mm -hmm. And this is what the players argued for. The players wanted the daily testing. They thought that would be a better way to, you know, really, you know, eliminate the the chance of um, false positives, false negatives, and be better at control, you know, a better way to control outbreaks. You know, mm-hmm. players are very concerned about the fact, well, it's, it's complicated. One, they didn't want to be in a bubble. The NFL never really legitimately considered a true bubble scenario, like what the, uh, what the NBA is doing mm-hmm. um, or Major League Soccer. But players are also very concerned about what's going to happen when they leave their facilities and right. what the team, what the guys next to them are doing, um, you know, where they're going, where the, their, their coaches and their coaches' families are going. 
So they believe that the daily testing will be one way or potentially now the best way to prevent any sort of outbreak, especially early in training camp. Makes sense. Um, obviously, we could do a whole other show on this topic, but maybe briefly, in terms of the negotiations surrounding the possible loss of stadium revenue uh, next year, or, or obviously it would be for this upcoming season and then impact the 2021 salary cap. Do you have any sense of of whether the two sides are close to an agreement, whether an agreement is more likely than sort of just letting the chips fall where they may? I mean, where do these two sides stand on the possible or I guess expected loss of revenue for this upcoming season? Yeah, I mean, the difference right now is that the NFL wants to kind of finalize finalize this more quickly and uh, try to absorb as much of the losses immediately. They want, you know, they want teams to, you know, whatever, it's 40% uh, reduction in player costs in 2020. Um, you know, obviously the, the NFL Players Association doesn't want their current players, the guys who, you know, are more at risk, you know, if they're kind of putting themselves at COVID risk and their family's risk right now to take all of, take the brunt of it. They would rather spread that out um, the PA also wants to, they would rather um, get a little bit closer to the season, see what these losses are actually going to be like, rather mm -hmm. than working off of kind of estimates before they figure out exactly how much of the, the burden of it they're going to assume um, for 2020 and 2021. And I think those are pretty significant differences. Um, I don't think they're, I don't think it's unworkable differences, but, you know, wanting to go off of kind of a, Estimates here on July, what are, what are we at, July 22nd versus what the numbers actually look like on, you know, August 22nd. I do understand, though, why the two sides are kind of looking at this very differently. Um, I do think they'll get it done. Um, you know, we're still about six weeks away from the start of the regular season. You know, we're, and we, this is how the deadlines were. I mean, they need deadlines for all of these things. <laughs> and they've, the closer we get to these official reporting deadlines and practice starting deadlines, they're actually getting deals done. Um, but yeah, but I mean, those are significant questions that they still have to figure out. And um, I do understand why players are concerned about how much, how much of a financial hit they're going to be taking in a season where they're also going through so many other potential changes. Mm -hmm. Makes total sense. So let's let's talk about maybe some scenarios here. I'm going to lay out a few options, sort of just talk about, hey, this is what you know what could happen in a typical season. And I just want to get your thoughts on on who might benefit, whether it's a team, whether it's a type of player, just a general sense of of who might you know benefit if the season does shift, uh, regular season, of course, based on you know the coronavirus, based on on, on you know possible outbreak. Um, just sort of get a general sense of of how the the changing season or the uncertainty about the season might impact the on-field play. Um, let's just start with this. We know that there's going to be no preseason, um, dramatically reduced practice schedule. Who do you think is going to benefit from that? Yeah, it's, I think it's going to be the teams who have veteran quarterbacks and veteran play callers, and the teams that have the most stability um, are going to be in the best position and. You know, I don't think this is the year where we're going to see a lot of these worst to first kind of runs where, you know, we'll see the surprising rookie head coach or rookie quarterback having this breakout. You know, I think mm -hmm. it's just going to be really tough for those teams. So, you know, I think, you know, this is, this is, I don't think any of this is good news. To be clear, nothing that's happening right, right now course. is good news. But if you are the Kansas City Chiefs, 
let's say, you feel pretty good, right, about where you're at. You feel good about the guys that you got under contract in the last month with Patrick Mahomes and Chris Jones. You you love the fact that your entire offensive coaching staff is intact, that you still have, you know, your your scheme is intact. You know, you you know, they made decisions to bring back Sammy Watkins. You know, that was that was something that I think in a non pandemic year probably wouldn't have happened. But mm-hmm. they knew that they knew that this was going to be an abnormal year and it would be really difficult to bring in a different wide receiver who could fill the role that Sammy Watkins does. And so they made it work and they reworked a deal for him that was able to fit in. And um, so I think the chiefs are in a really good place. You know, I think the Seahawks are in a good place. I think uh, it's hard to say the Packers are in a great place, but they do have at least stability there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't, I I still have a lot of questions about some of the things that they did um, in the draft but, you know, I just, I think, you know, the Eagles, this is probably a good, a good situation for the Eagles with, mm-hmm. you know, the stability that they have offensively. Um, so, yeah, I think those are some of the teams, the teams that were good last year and didn't have to go through massive changes. You know, I think, I think that's, those are the teams, like if you're, you know, if you're going to go put some money down, that's probably where the, the safest money is. Mm, interesting. I, I, I'll say this much. I, I think we've heard a lot of arguments and, and understandably, that continuity is good, that having veterans are good. And I think that makes total sense, and, and it's absolutely logical. Let me just play devil's advocate for a second here. Being old sucks, and being old <laughs> and being a football player is tough. My concern is not that those guys are going to be smart, because obviously they'll be smarter, they're more experienced, they know do they get their bodies ready for the season, but that comes in a year where you have a training camp schedule and you have preseason games, even if it's just, uh, you know, one game you're playing, or, or to your point, even if it's just those those camp practices against another team, you're getting reps, and those guys are not going to get the same number of reps heading into the season. So I wonder if, realistically, it's better to be a rookie or better to be an extremely young player because, hey, your hamstring is less likely to pull because you're just younger. You just don't have less wear and tear in your body. And I wonder if we're going to see more injuries amongst those old players, more soft tissue injuries, especially early in the season as they get themselves in football shape by playing real football games as opposed to playing, uh, you know, a, a, a camp practice or a preseason game. Oh, and that's a very real concern. And the players that are, the people that are negotiating this stuff right now, they are older players. There's a number of them who remember 2011 or, you know, they were, you know, Richard Sherman was a rookie in 2011 during the lockout. So he didn't have that, that off season. Um, so even if they weren't technically in the league, then they, they at least remember kind of a lot more what, what the last year without a regular off season was like. And, and yeah, and they are older guys who are more sensitive to what your body goes through and what sort of preparation you need to make it through a season healthy. So I think that is definitely a really, a really big concern um, about injuries that, that players have, you know, I guess I would say the flip side for the, I guess to, to play devil's advocate to your devil's advocate <laughs> is, that, is that the the people who are going to be making these roster decisions and figuring out who are going to play, mm-hmm. they, it's the coaches. And the coaches are going to care about what do you know and how much can I trust you? And that's, I think, the part that the rookies are going to have the hardest part right 100%. now without having had very, without having much, much on, on field time and those really limited reps. Mm-hmm. Makes total sense. Um, let's imagine a scenario where the season is shortened, where we have a suspended chunk of the season. Let's just go simple first half, second half. If the NFL only plays the first half of the regular season, 
Is there a team or a couple teams you think are likely to benefit from having a, a particularly easy first half schedule versus their second half strain or, or anyone who comes to mind for you? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I have a hard time doing, getting too, getting too into the like strength of schedule based mm-hmm. on last year's strengths of schedules and all of that sort of stuff. So I tend to look at it as, you know, who will be the most ready to play September 10th through yep. September 14th. And those are the teams, uh, you know, some of the ones I already mentioned, it's, the Chiefs, it's the 49ers, I think, you know, it's the Seahawks. I think it's the teams that will be ready and have their schemes in place and can get by with eight days of padded practices and be ready to play. You know, the guys who don't have a ton of guys coming off of injury, those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, I think those are the teams that will probably be in the best, in the best positions. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm also real curious about some of the teams that, you know, you would think would get maybe a boost from a home field advantage that they're yeah. not going to get. They're certainly not going to get that early in the season. You know, you'd think that the Raiders might get this, you know, some sort of a boost by playing these primetime games earlier in the year in their new stadium, mm-hmm. you know, and now they're going to be mo- moving into this new stadium or nobody's going to be there to watch them. Um, so, yeah, I guess those are, those are the couple that come to mind. I mean, I don't know how many times I need to just say that I think the Chiefs are going to be good. But, you know, I just think it's a really bad year to be anybody else in the AFC and looking at the Chiefs. And, and I haven't mentioned the Ravens much. You know, I do think the Ravens are going to be continually evolving, but I think they're in a pretty good – if this had been last year for the Ravens, it would have been really, really tough because mm-hmm. they really needed all of that time to figure out who they were with Lamar yeah. Jackson. Um, but they know who they are now. Um, they have been adding a lot of pieces and I think really trying to refine what they want to do and they've changed – somewhat on defense in this offseason. But yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's rough to be the rest of the AFC and look at, I think it was already pretty top heavy and I think it's only going to become more top heavy in 2020. I would like to also put it on the record alongside you, Lindsay, that I think the Chiefs are going to be good this year. I, I just <laughs> want it, want it official. You <laughs> can put it on, on their Wikipedia page. Bill Barnwell said the Chiefs are going to be good in 2020. Um, I mean, you come to this podcast for hot takes, like yeah. the Chiefs are going to be good. Well, I will throw a hot take out there. and Not really a hot take, because I'm going to try to support it, but I don't know if they're going to be good. But I think a team that would benefit from only having the first half of the season are the Jacksonville Jaguars, a, a team that does have some coaching continuity, does have offensive line continuity, that does have a quarterback in Gardner Minshew who's coming back and knows the scheme. They are a very young team, but I think one of the points that I would make about uh, the Jags is is that you have, if you're a bad team, and I don't want to disparage Jags too much, they're supposed to be a bad team this year. I think if you ask 100 people around the NFL who's going to have the first pick in the 2021 NFL draft, the Jacksonville Jaguars would be the leading candidate. That's just reality. They are a team that's in rebuilding mode. I don't want to you know, pick on them. I'm just, I think that's just the reality we live in. If you're a bad team, you want a short season. It's better for yeah. a bad team to have an eight-game schedule than a 16-game schedule because you're going to be revealed. You're going to be found out. You have a better opportunity to kind of take the league by storm over eight games than you do by 16 games. And for the Jags, their first-half schedule, it's, it's not that tough. They play the Dolphins. They play the Bengals. They play the Lions. They play the Texans. They're in okay shape. If it's an eight game season for 16 games, I think they have zero chance of doing anything, but in eight games, their chances do improve. They do have a viable shot of at least being competitive and putting together, Hey, a five and three stretch. That's not, you know, that would be surprising, but it wouldn't be the absolute most shocking thing in the universe. And that could be enough to get you in the playoffs. So, uh, you know, I think a team like that, even if they're not the first team that comes to mind, could be 
a team that sits here and really benefits from a first half slate. Now, Lindsay, let me flip, flip it and go back. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, so here, I thought maybe you were going a different direction, and I'm just going to completely flip this on the Jags or a bad team. And uh, with the, the first half of the season, if they are bad, like a lot of people expect they would be, maybe it would be better for them to only play eight games and then yes. you get the number one pick in the draft because you've been so bad early and mm-hmm. struggled early. And then you avoid like what happened with the Dolphins last year, where they kind of started to figure stuff out and won some games and it ruined, or didn't ruin, you know, they still ended up in Tua, but it hurt their draft position. So mm-hmm. one of these teams, you know, that, that is young and they're kind of rebuilding, you know, if you have eight games and you're not going to be good, maybe just get out, get out then with the number one pick. And don't, don't risk winning a couple meaningless games in December that that would drop you down from, you know, number one to number four or five in the draft. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, I think also, you know, you mentioned home field advantage. I don't think people are talking about the impact that not having the same home field advantage is going to have on teams. I, I think look at a team like the Seahawks, right, where, you know, talented veteran team, playoff team a year ago, a terrible place to play. Everyone hates going to Seattle. The crowd is on you. It's one of the loudest situations in the league. That's not going to be the case this year. I mean, there's going to be some fans in the stands possibly, but not many. And, you know, I don't think that, you know, even 15,000 Seahawks fans are going to make the same amount of noise that an entire stadium full would. That's going to impact teams who have a significant home field advantage. Seattle comes to mind. Baltimore comes to mind historically. Even Kansas City, uh, a team that yeah, had, I was thinking Kansas know, City. really loud home field advantage. Um, but then on the other side, a team like Denver, obviously loud fans. I'm not trying to take away from the fans, but one of the biggest reasons Denver has home field advantage is because of the altitude. And that's not going away. Altitude is still going to be a problem for teams going to play Denver. So I think home field advantage is going to differ depending on sort of what you derive home field advantage from, uh, from organization to organization. Yeah, and it's going to be different from market to market. You know, Atlanta is kind of setting up to have 20,000 fans, and obviously New Jersey is going to have zero fans. The expectation right now is in California that they'll have no no fans. So, you know, might not be all that different if you're the Chargers. Um, but it's it's going to be very interesting to see. And I think we're going to learn a lot about true home field advantage and, and how much those things are those those things are real and how much they are more of more attributed to kind of who the team is and mm-hmm. less about some of those other factors. But I do think you're right about the, a couple of these places. Seattle is so unique. Kansas city is so, is so unique. You know, I think those two teams go back and forth in terms of like being the actual loudest places to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, now they'll be, they'll be silent and Russell Wilson and Patrick Mahomes two of the very best quarterbacks in the league won't get that benefit of, you know, playing at home and their and their defenses won't necessarily get the benefit of drowning out the opposing quarterbacks. And I guess it's good for the Chargers, who now won't have. Uh, I guess they they would have they don't have road fans invading their stadium anymore. But now no fans are probably better than their situation a year ago. Yeah, I mean, it's probably better. It's it's like it's it's good for the Chargers. They're gonna like not having you know fifteen thousand Broncos fans in their stadium um, or Chiefs fans for those AFC West games or, you know, 40,000 for a Raiders game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about the second half? We talked about the first half. Is there a team or a type of team you think would be likely to benefit if the NFL did have to delay for a few weeks and maybe only play the second half of the season? Yeah, I mean, I think we'd have to consider why they were delaying and what the circumstances would look like while they were delayed. If, if they couldn't 
quite play games yet, would they still be able to do kind of operating in this modified bubble where they could practice a lot? Because, you know, I look at like the Tampa Bay Bucks, for example, where I, I think the pieces there are awesome and there's so much to like about their potential, but it is going to be a work in progress. And the fact that Brady has not actually been on the field with Byron Lefferich and Bruce Arians, you know, yes, he's been getting his own players together, but just in terms of that, that might be a, a little bit longer timeline for how quickly all of that comes together. And I kind of always looked at them as like, if they can just be good, good to decent in the first half of the year and kind of competitive in the AF, or in the NFC South, that late in the year, they might play really, really well. And Brady, you know, can kind of come through with some of those late season games like he tends to do. Um, so I think the Bucks are a team that would benefit from having, um, you know, games later in the year and extra practice time. Um, so they're, I guess they're that number one team that I'm really, that I'm really looking at that, that could benefit from a little bit longer timeline. Yeah. I, I was thinking about a team like the Steelers where it's a veteran team. It's sure. not only a, an easy schedule where they play uh, Bengals, Jags, Washington, Bengals, again, Colts and Browns in the second half where the Colts, I think are going to be pretty good, but those teams in general, I'm not expecting them to be major, major difference makers in the NFL season, but, um, they get five home games. They play the Bears. They play the Lions. They play uh, the Panthers. Oh, sorry. No, excuse me. That's two different. Two different I have the Packers. I should say you're my second team. I have conf I conflated my two different arguments. Uh, but Steelers, I mentioned the teams in the first half. And then Packers, they don't play the Vikings, Saints, Vikings, Niners, and Bucks, who are all first half matchups for them. And then it's uh, three games against the AFC South, five home games, and the Bears, Lions, and Panthers for the Packers. Both teams who play in cold weather. And yeah. you don't have that advantage in the first half of the season. Typically, you know, you could have that advantage in November and December where you're only playing, you know, you're when whenever your games are home, you're playing against uh, teams who are maybe not super thrilled about the cold weather in your home stadium. So uh, I, I think those are two teams who stand out to me as possible teams who would benefit from playing strictly the second half of the season. Um, Lindsay, let me finish up with this in terms of the playoff structure. Uh, of course, Major League Baseball is reportedly considering uh, adding teams to the playoffs this year. The NFL, of course, already had plans on adding a seventh playoff team this year. If the playoffs do expand to maybe a one-year thing where it's a, let's say, a 16-team playoff, half the league makes the playoffs, are, are there teams who would benefit from that in your eyes? I mean, I, I do, though, still think that the NFL is a little less prone to those, like, getting, the, you know, the hot team that you sometimes see where you, you know, yeah. in baseball, you can have the guy who has the, you have one or two really hot pitchers, and that can carry you through the playoff, the postseason, or you look at, you know, the national run last year. That's harder to do in the NFL. Um, you know, it's, it, it would really depend. I would have to see what, like, bye week structure type of stuff would look like. Um, you know, the NFL, but it's going to be really curious just the way that they've already restructured the postseason to make it so only the number one seed gets a buy, if that's going to make it so that whoever gets that number one seed has an even easier path to the Super Bowl than they have in the past where, you know, the, the number one and number two seeds are almost always making the AFC championship game. Now it's just having that bye week is just really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, but I do think, you know, you look that the NFC is, I think completely wide open, you know, I think there's no clear favorite there. So I think, you know, open, if you were to expand the NFC playoff pool, you know, that means that, you know, let's say the Eagles and the Colts or Eagles, Eagles and the Cowboys both get in. And, you know, I think the Cowboys are one of those teams that could also 
benefit from if they only played the second half of the year, you know, they're just undergoing so many changes yep. that, you know, they, their team that you know, I would expect is going to keep getting better and better as the season goes on. Um, you know, the more you open the field in the NFC, I think the more chances you have for kind of a, a, a another team to sneak in there that maybe wasn't as good early in the year. Um, you know, any more chances that we get to have uh, NFC West teams into the playoffs next year, I think will be great. You know, I think, that that division is going to be wild and really, really interesting. And you even look at last year where, I mean, they were six, the Seahawks were six inches away from the number two seed and winning that division. And the Niners ended up in the Super Bowl in large part because they ended up with the one seed and home field advantage in the playoffs. So, you know, I, I just think it would make the NFC that much more interesting if the playoff field expands. Um, if you look at the AFC, you know, I think there's, it's a lot more top heavy and, you know, I think it would help a team like the Broncos who don't have, I don't think they have a great chance of winning the division, mm -hmm. but I think they absolutely could be in that wild card, that kind of that wild card consideration. And if there's more wild card spots, I think that's, that's good for them. That's good for, you know, the Steelers, uh, you know, kind of maybe whoever the number two or number three team in uh, the Browns and the, the AFC North. So, um, you know, I, that's not something that I believe has really been significantly discussed in terms of expanding the playoff field beyond um, beyond how they already expanded it, but it is kind of some fun hypotheticals to work through. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think teams that are sort of on the borderline of making the postseason make sense to me. I mean, the Browns are a team that came to mind for me. It's a team that, you know, you'd figure in that seven and nine, eight and eight range where not typically going to be a playoff team with that record, but... 16 team playoff can happen uh the, the falcons in, in a very crowded nfc south same thing maybe even the patriots a team that you know who knows what their quarterback situation is going to be uh absolutely a you know uh, it, it doesn't seem like it's likely but then again i you know baseball is deciding on one day's notice to change their playoff structure so i'm not ruling anything out when it comes to this nfl season i think a lot of things at least temporarily at least for this one season are up in the air. And Lindsay Jones, you're going to keep covering all those things for where? Um, you can find all of my work at The Athletic, and you can find me on Twitter at by Lindsay H. Jones, um, where right now you can find me going on, on rants about how NFL players don't correctly wear their masks. So, you know, mask coverage and, you know, stuff about my daughter and her birthday. So. Yes. <laughs> and the NFL. Okay. Uh, please also, I feel like I have not said this in the show, please wear a mask. Just, just, I hope that most of my listeners are doing it, but everyone, just do it. It's fun, and you uh, you can help. It feels like a major missed opportunity for the messaging. I mean, they should, if they'd start talking about masks, if you, if you want football, wear a mask. They should have been doing this in April. So if you want the NFL season, you probably do if you're listening to this podcast. Just wear your mask. It's not yeah. that hard. It's not that hard. Um, Lindsay, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Bill. Talk to you later. All right, thanks so much, as always, to my guest, Lindsay Jones, one of the best. I always love having Lindsay on the show. Check her work out at The Athletic, and keep listening to the show. Thanks so much for checking out The Bill Barnwell Show. We have more NFL coming next week, so thanks so much for listening and more on the way.